and welcome to Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Tim is in the cozy confines of his parents' home in Georgia, sitting on the porch, surrounded by birds and evergreens, and wrapped up in a blanket. Angelina is at her house in, in North Carolina, presumably, um, I, I'm assuming, wrapped up in a blanket. Um... That's just how I picture the situation. Angelina, Tim, how's it going? It's, it's very cozy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? David, are you the only one that's under fluorescent light bulbs? Uh, no, the lights are all off. Oh, you're doing this in the dark. <laughs> no, there's an open, there's a window so I can see, but I don't turn the lights oh, on I because see. fluorescent lights make it leave a hum and therefore yeah, yeah, yeah. ruin the... The pristine audio quality of the show. <laughs> I don't know just who so am I kidding. Happy. I'm just gonna go turn the light on. I'm so happy about this cold spell. Oh my gosh, this is the best. This is the best. 25 degrees in November. I'm so happy. Is it really 25 degrees? It's gonna be. It's gonna be 25 tonight and 28 tomorrow. Aren't you getting all the notifications on your phone that we're under a deep freeze advisory? Well, somehow I mean, I'm not plugged into Concord, North Carolina. <laughs> I was talking to David, not you. Oh, like, Jim, sorry, I don't imagine sorry. your phone blows up every time there's a cold spill in North Carolina. <laughs> when, when well, <laughs> you never it know. It should if it's not. I mean, you, you, you should be zoomed in on Cersei HQ all the time. You but. never know what he chooses to have as. He probably had, like, he came to North Carolina one time and he set the weather on his, on his app on his iPhone. And now, like, he just gets the notifications for everywhere he goes. So it's like Colorado <laughs> Springs, Phoenix. He's getting, like, flooded with notifications okay i have a question for you guys how many cities do you do you guys wait one of you has an iphone I do. david do you have an yeah. iphone yeah yeah angelina you have an android oh i think we have well established i'm not a mac girl yes i have an android okay so do you have a weather app angelina where you can enter multiple cities and kind of track i, I do in in the backwoods of the android world they do have weather apps yes okay 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 <laughs> smart alex I mean, I have to, like, do my rabbit ears with aluminum foil, but I, if I get it just right, I get the weather. I knew it. I knew it. I knew that Android people were crazy. Okay, do you have multiple cities entered into your weather app? Yes. I do. Okay, I want to know what your cities are. No! Why not? That's this too revealing. private? This is too private to I'm share? I'm so weird about the stuff I choose to make private, but I seriously am having a panic attack right now. Like, I can't tell you where my cities are. I'll tell okay, you. Okay, David, since you and I are, can I just say it, normal? Oh, Do you wow. want to talk about cities? I yeah, have are you going to go there? Are you going to go there? Okay, Fine, I, I'll tell, you, I'll tell I, you my cities. I have so many. It's not even, it's so many. I, I bet because of all the seriously conferences, you probably got a, you probably got a city for every Circe conference host location. Yeah, unless I ever think of like, unless I think to go back and delete them because there's too many. One time when I'm like sitting in an airport or something. Um, so I have Concord, surprise, surprise, Chicago, Milwaukee, Indianapolis, Charleston, West Virginia, Charleston, South Carolina, Green Bay, Wisconsin, Louisville, Kentucky, Knoxville, Tennessee, Cincinnati, Ohio, Austin, Texas, Jackson, Mississippi, Shreveport, Louisiana, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, Watertown, New York, and Toronto. Um, those are the ones. David Kern. The top right now. That's <laughs> remarkable. My sister lives in Watertown, New York, so presumably that's why that's there. It's 20 degrees there yeah. right now. That's gross. That is wrong. It's daytime. Okay. 
All right, fine, fine. I'm just gonna. Larissa, I'm gonna put if you're my listening, embarrassing thing out here. Okay, I'm gonna tell you my city, and of it, course, it's an embarrassing story to go with it. But whatever. I want to hear it, Angela. I didn't know that we've shamed you. Into you have. You've feeling. shamed me, Tim. You've shamed me. Into me. Okay, so Matt Bianco's like gonna to... be so bored with this episode already. <laughs> I like to daydream about moving to Colorado, so I check the weather in several Colorado to see what it is. And I think, oh, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so there you have it. There's nothing to be what, ashamed of there. Yeah, what's older, weird about that? Check, check regularly. <laughs> that, that's cool. I mean, I, I don't think that's that weird. <laughs> Tim, what about you? Where are your... I don't have that many. Here, I'll read mine off to you. I have Seattle, Atlanta, New York, Charleston, Washington, D.C. Brother and sister-in-law live in D.C. Mom, dad, and sister live in Atlanta. I always have this little, oh, I don't know if you would call it a daydream or what you would call it, but I, I would like to spend a year of my life in New York City. So I just kind of just check the weather in New York City sometimes. Of course, I lived in I live in Seattle and Portland. I lived in Portland for a couple of summers and I just it's a little bit of a heart city for me. I also have the weather in Louisiana, which I check regularly and then say, suck it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You check it to remind yourself how glad you are that you're in oh, Concord, my not goodness. in Louisiana. Yeah, so you can, can we like, say oh, that on the air? Please over here. Edit it out. It's fine. <laughs> Do you even can you say Louisiana? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not no, going to spend right. that time That's doing that. That's a trigger that. word for me. Edit, edit Louisiana out. Trigger <laughs> word. Also, okay, I'm going to confess. I'm such a geek, y'all. For real. I drive around literally going, red tree, red tree, red tree, red tree. <laughs> I'm so mm, super mm. excited You mean because you have autumn. Oh, my gosh. We actually have seasons here. Yeah. yeah. I've only so read about seasons in Louisiana. No, there are no red trees. Everything's evergreen. There's no red. Oh, I didn't know that. There's no red. I've literally never seen a red tree before. Well, it's like taking pictures and ooing and all. Like, I think the people who drive behind me must think I'm just some kind of weirdo because I slow down and we look at the red tree <laughs> and we point at him. They're probably like, what is she pointing at? Okay, but let's be honest. Let's be honest. I mean, David and I, growing up in North Carolina in Atlanta, maybe have gotten a little bit dulled to the fact that you, God made trees turn red in autumn. Red, red, red trees tree, are Tim. That's absolutely amazing. majestic. What? Seriously. And then the most beautiful red, almost purple. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I 100% agree. I, yeah. So I couldn't agree. More. So uh, my, my, youngest child lucas is um he just turned 18 months and he's starting to talk in earnest and last weekend so he says he says little things you know he's putting a couple words together like last night at dinner he said yes please for the first time it was really cute oh um, it was one of those moments where he said it and it was so cute that bethany and i just looked at each other and started laughing but um he is he's been saying he's been saying Oh, yeah, like the Kool-Aid man. So we realized we should have dressed him up like the Kool-Aid man. So he's been saying, oh, yeah, and oh, no, and oh, boy, and stuff like that. But on Sunday, we went to a, a nearby state park called Mora Mountain, and um, they had this old-fashioned day at the park and all that. But then if, if you go to the top, you have a really good view. So we drove up to the top to walk around on some of the trails, 
and um, it was kind of foggy and like the, co- the colors are really nice. A little past peak, but still really nice. And I'm holding him while my mom and Bethany and the boys, all the other boys, go to the bathroom. And I'm I'm holding him, and he's just looking around. And he's every time he every direction he turns, he's just going, "Oh wow, oh wow, oh wow!" <laughs> For like two minutes, it's just like everything he saw was was crazy, and he has this new way to express it. So you basically, Angelina, you're experiencing. Um, what an 18-month-old experiences when they're first seeing things for the first time. Thank you. Thank you. I, I do consider my move to North Carolina a bit of a rebirth, so I'm 18 <laughs> months old now. I can totally live with that. <laughs> well, David, David the, also Lucas... means I can't read, but that's okay. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe you're just a smart 18-month-old. But the point is that we could all use a little bit of being 18 months old every now and then and how we see Absolutely. the world. No how one we is going to accuse me of having a lack of wonder about the world, Okay. <laughs> Tim, what were you going to say? Was Lucas more in love with what he was actually seeing, or was he more in love with saying, oh, wow? I have no idea, but either way, he was impressed by something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Undoubtedly. He, maybe just the sound of his own enough. voice. He, yeah. definitely, he definitely was into what he was seeing, though, because he was pointing, and he was seeing things. You know, he was looking around and pointing. But I think he probably, you know, once I started laughing or, like, enjoying him saying it, he probably was double down, doubling down on the entertainment value. Oh, yeah. yeah I bet definitely. He's performing. Speaking I, of, I've met your sons. They're performers. Speaking of doubling down on the performance, <laughs> we probably should get going with this show. Um, I wonder, you know what I wonder? We have now been on the air for about 11 minutes, uh, maybe 10 minutes. <laughs> I wonder if we should sort of set an honorary Matt mark, like a Matt Bianco mark, <laughs> if we cross, at about 10 minutes. If we cross So if, the- if Matt wants to listen he knows if i just hit the 10 minute mark i know that's where i can start listening to close i don't know why matt bianco doesn't have a sense of humor (laughs) well he sits in the office and banters with me he doesn't like get up and walk out and say when you finish this joking angelina call me back in That's yeah, my he, might, he, might, he might if he could now that I think about it. Um, <laughs> but but w- there, there you go. It's the the 10-minute mark is the honorary Matt mark. I'll tell him it's we're going to have mark. a Matt mark. No, I feel very constrained by time. You can't do that to me. Time is oppressive. This is why I don't have clocks in my house. This is an ongoing battle with me and my 13-year-old, Angelina, by the way. We, okay, one, that's weird. Two, we've had <laughs> well, – there's been an honorary Matt mark forever. I, we just haven't vocalized it out loud. Why do you think at a certain point I transition us? But wait, you vocalized it now i feel oppressed <laughs> all right just forget that all happened and yeah, let tim and take I, it all back tim, tim and i'll worry about when, the timing um hey david do we have a show sponsor <laughs> why do i get the feeling tim is trying to like well, put this the, train back on the track the, like boom i, I was gonna say the, the, failing the, and we're not allowing david to succeed oh, I, I stopped caring a while ago the um <laughs> This show is actually not brought to you by an outside sponsor, but it is brought to you by all kinds of stuff happening on the Cersei Podcast Network that I wanted to mention, and I didn't want to have another sponsor get swallowed up by that. So, uh, we have been recording episodes of The Commons, and that's going to be launching here soon. It'll have a little bit of a delay, but um, that's going to be 10 episodes all covering... um, uh, key figures in church history from Chrysostom through the Puritans. So Brian Phillips, that's that's his show. We're going to be 10 straight weeks starting uh, in mid-November and going through the holidays. And that's going to be a great show. Um, the Ask Andrew podcast is relaunching next week. Uh, and those are going to be weekly shows airing every, uh, I believe, every 
Wednesday, Wednesday or Thursday, um, and those are going to be Andrew Kern answering questions about key terms, ideas, themes in classical education. So that'll be about a 10 to 12 minute episode every week where he just kind of gives definitions of important terms like the seven liberal arts or the quadrivium or the trivium or, you know, what is an art to classical educators? What is a science? Things like that. So those that's going to be launching here soon. And then we've got uh, Matt Bianco's show, which is going to be launching, launching in the spring. Um, we've got a special show with Wes Callahan coming up that I'm not going to say too much more about. Um, plus, we have all our weekly shows. The Mason Jar is going to go weekly. we got the, uh, the, the Close Reads every week. And we have Format every week, which is our uh, interview show. And those will launch on Mondays. Or those will not launch, but those will air on Mondays. So there's lots of stuff going on. All these shows will have their own feeds, so you can subscribe to those. So go hunt those down. And, of course, you can just subscribe to this, the podcast network if you'd like, but it does help us when people subscribe to the individual shows as well. So, um, that, so that, I, 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 oh, go so ahead. Close Reads is brought to you by the Cersei <laughs> Podcast Network. <laughs> go ahead, so Angelina. I Matt Bianco because he hates banter so much that he should call his podcast In Media Rest and literally start it in mid-sentence. Like, just. That's a clever idea. That's how anti-banter he is. That That's a clever idea. Right? He liked it. I think y'all should go with that and totally give me full credit. <laughs> I think he already has a name chosen, which I'm not going to say on the air yet. I'm not going to confirm or deny whether or not that is what he chose. Um, <laughs> let's let's talk about the murder on the Orient Express. Let's do um, it. This let's is, do we're going to answer some listener questions today, and then next week we're going to talk about the movie. And we did see that there's some people have already seen the movie. I believe it's been in theaters for like 10 hours, maybe. So, and it's 10 in the morning. So someone, someone somewhere already someone saw the movie. Someone went to a midnight feature. Somebody deserves a mug. <laughs> so, oh, by the way, yeah, we're going to have another giveaway. It's not going to be a mug, but we're going to give away another copy of an Agatha Christie novel. It's going to be, it's a nice new edition of, um, and then there were none. And here's what we're going to do. If you I have just... any swag, any close read swag from Patreon. So if you, whether you have bookmarks, mugs, posters, or t-shirts, what we want you to do is go ahead and do something like stage it somehow in some fun way. Um, take a picture, post it on the, the podcast page, and uh, give it the hashtag, uh, Close Reads Swag. And then Graham and I, with a little input from Angelina and Tim, are going to vote on which one we think is the most creative and interesting. And we are going to send the book to that person. So, That's fun. I tell you right now, if somebody gets a picture of Kenneth Branagh wearing a Close Reads t-shirt, you win. <laughs> well, <laughs> no doubt. But Graham, no will not, doubt. Graham will not vote for it if it's the picture is out of focus. Um <laughs> So we're so so go ahead and do that. So any close reads swag, we're not gonna just because you have a t-shirt, we're not necessarily going to give you the give it to you. Like if you have a, if you come up with an amazing thing to do with the post with the uh, bookmarks, you get some points for that. Oh yes, so. like if Wendell Berry is using an Angelina bookmark, that would also win. <laughs> yeah, you. I mean, you might that that would be interesting. Uh, interesting to try to make that happen. That would take some right, right before the restraining order comes through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, let's answer some questions. Let's let's answer some listener questions. Let's do it. Um, our friend Jill set up a little feed for us on the uh, on the Close Reads page. So I'm going to answer her question first. Well, I'm not. I'm going to pose her question first and let us let us argue about it. So she says that her her question regards the whole issue of justice, as most of these questions do, and. Um, she is wondering how bad would Cassetti have to be for us to feel a sense of justice about what happened to him or what happened in the story. 
Um, and she says that all these people surrounding the Armstrong case were justified in taking matters into their own hands. Like, so would we? How bad would he have to? Would be he have to be for us to feel that they were justified in that? What if he only kidnapped one child or murdered an adult and not a child? Would we still say he deserved what he got? And she says that she agrees that at the end of the book, it seems that Christie wants us to feel that what they did was just. So is Christie deliberately putting us in an extremely sticky moral situation? Even though Poirot himself punts the final call to Book, Christie seems to be leaving the whole justice morality question wide open by ending the book on that note. So agree, disagree. How bad would he have to be? Tim, I'll let you take that one first. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, wow. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, Tim is well, almost 18 months old. Who, Jill is the one that asked the question, David? Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Here is my initial thought. I, I don't really have – I don't know that any of us have a, a, a vision of justice that is – Based on um, that sort of, oh, that's not exactly true. The trouble I have with the question. Oh, thank you. I also am troubled by the question. Go ahead. <laughs> is that it has a kind of um, numeric value associated with the, oh gosh, that's totally unfair to Jill. I'll, <laughs> I'll finish my thought. The way that I heard it was there's kind of a quantifiable badness. And once we, cross like a certain level of quantifiable badness, then we kind of lurch into, well, now it's okay to, um, to set aside, uh, the sword of the state and take justice into our own hands. That's totally unfair to Jill's question. That was my first reaction to it. I don't know that we can I don't know that I – but here's the counter argument. Jill would probably say to me, but Tim, we do this all the time. All the time we say um, someone who – you know, the shooter in uh, Las Vegas or the shooter in Texas is not just guilty of one single murder but of multiple murders and thus the penalty is more severe. Hmm. Angelina, you said you're troubled by the the question as well. Let's just pile on Jill here for a second. Okay, well. <clears throat> because she does actually offer a qualifier and a future comment that I'm going to bring up in a second. Oh, good. So that is not the kind of question I ever ask of a book, and I think it's an unfair question to ask of this book. That's my that's my issue. My my whole thing about books is entering into the world that the author gives me and being fair to that. Uh, Agatha Christie is not asking that question, and she's not offering an answer to it, and I don't think she's even interested in it. So because there were so many questions about the issue of justice and what is she saying with that, that I you know I did a little research on it, um, and so I read. P.D. James's book talking about detective fiction. She talks about Agatha Christie a lot in it. And one of the things that she says is that 
Well, she makes a distinction between Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers, which I completely agree with. And she says that Dorothy Sayers is interested in social realism and psychological realism, and she's raising those sorts of questions. Agatha Christie is deliberately not. That the form for her is always just an intellectual puzzle. And so she gives the satisfying answer to the puzzle. She unravels the puzzle. And and so when she has Poirot punt, she is also punting. This is She's not asking that question, what is just? She's just solving the puzzle. So I think it's unfair to ask it of the book, and I would not ask it of the book. And it's a fair philosophical question, but it's not a fair question to ask of this book because that's not the parameter she set. This is not what's interesting to her. She just wants to solve the puzzle. Yeah, and I don't know – I don't know that that, um, Jill was necessarily saying – what does Christy think so much as how bad would it have to be for us? Like just in terms right. of right, and I, I wasn't saying she was, but there were several questions uh, on the page with regard to what does Christy intend. And okay, so I th- so the answer is she intends to not answer that question. But my, my understanding and my other reading of of Christy and you know so forth is that she actually, you know, she was she felt very strongly about about what murdered what punishment murdered deserved so she created like if someone murdered someone her character that character died in her stories we either yes. was going to die via <clears throat> you know like death penalty ha- death penalty or even committed suicide or was killed by somebody else like that's if that is the that to her w- was a, a principle of justice so to speak so I, I I think you're right about the puzzle in terms of what she's going for, but she also may have been you know making a statement about about death uh, you know murder in particular. I don't know if those those two things might just coexist. I don't I don't maybe we're I'm probably not really disagreeing with you. No, I don't think that you I don't think that you are. I agree with that, and I agree that in terms of the book, <clears throat> we are supposed to believe that what happened to Cassetti was just. So the, the bigger that, question, of course, right. is. Is is you know is letting the killers go just that's the that's the bigger issue but right and that's so Jill says you know she she qualifies I guess my question isn't so much whether or not the punishment for murder is death but what is it about this particular case that makes us feel that they were justified in taking the responsibility for his punishment into their own hands so the gray area seems she says seems to be the execution of the punishment not the punishment itself if that makes sense. So I, What's interesting is that one of the and I and I, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm only going to talk about this a little bit because I'm going to talk about it more later. But one of the points that P.D. James makes is that the English detective novel always upholds the institution. So what was interesting is that Agatha Christie does not uphold the institution here, right? The institution failed, the justice system failed, and so you know you have the vigilante justice, but. That's a that's a diversion for her, and that's also a diversion for the form and the tradition. Like she seems, she's she's tapping in a little more to the American tradition there, which has a, a deep distrust of institutions. But it's interesting that it's the American institution that failed. So how so? How so, Angelina? Well, the American court system failed to convict him. He gets off on a on a technicality. I see. Right. 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 I see. Yeah. So, so pursuing the means of justice via the institution failed them. I wonder if that's a little nod by Christie to. I wonder her, that too. Her views of American crime stories, or or not even her views on them, just kind of their existence, like the nature of the American crime story, like the cynicism of them. No, exactly, exactly. Because if if 
if Christie's interested in the puzzle and the game, the, the whole game's a foot thing from Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. and then um, uh, Sayers is interested in making social commentary, uh, which she certainly was to some degree at least, and then also they were she was interested in creating fun <laughs> um, and, and humor and all that, because there is a lot of humor in Sayers. But also the, the American stories tend to be darker, a little more cynical, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. a little bit more noir. You know, the, the, you know, the French and the Americans knew noir, right? Um, so maybe that's an maybe that's a little nod to, to right because Raymond uh, Chandler had a lot to say about Agatha Christie as well. So they were definitely on each other's radars, <clears throat> and I and right. I also I wonder that as well. But you know, someone also raised the question of you know how is this received by the public, and so I looked that up as well, and it was received very well. The critics were good, the reviews were good, the public response was good. It was you know they felt like it was a satisfying ending. They didn't see it coming. She did a good job with the puzzle, and you know keeping the ending a surprise yet satisfying so okay let's talk none, about- none of the reviews that i read raised the question of the justice or the vigilante aspect or felt that it was an unsatisfying ending because she left it open which kind of surprised me I, but uh my guess is that a reviewer would not be looking for that sort of thing in a christie novel and so just judged her in terms of what it is that she does and did she do it well and not asking her to do something that she doesn't do, if that makes sense. I wonder if literature at the time, like if people were more conditioned by literature at the time to be more to be more okay with like that moment of stasis at the end of the book. Like the, you don't, not everything needs to be closed, you know. I right. Don't... Well, and P.D. James makes the point, which I was really glad to see her. She confirms in this book a lot of things that I have observed myself. So she she makes the point that it's Dorothy Sayers who elevates the detective novel to literature. So I don't know that there would have been a contemporary expectation of Agatha Christie to be like high art hmm. and to demand things of it that you would demand of art. Hmm. Yeah. So, okay, I want to I want to have one quick follow-up question from Sylvia here about the ending and justice. So she says, was this ending about justice or about pain and closure? Was justice being pursued, oh, pursued, wow. pursued wow. by the Twelve as a way to mitigate or end their pain? Or were they genuinely concerned with possible future victims and that sort of thing as relate, so as relates to justice? So were they after justice or were they after closure? I think is a fascinating question. Tim, what do you think about that? Because you just said, oh, I think wow. it's a great. Well, because I think it's a great question, and I think it, it is a good question. Certainly, they were after closure. The question is whether or not closure and justice are uh, divorcees or married. I was thinking the same thing. I wasn't using yeah. that metaphor, but that's what I was. I was like, I don't sure I understand what the distinction is there because isn't part of what the state does with justice is to offer that closure to the victim? Absolutely right, right. I mean, like a little bit of history might help us here. Part of think about what happened. Well, I think what and, this, I think what the question is getting at. If just to interrupt for a second, is is it about? Are they are these people after something noble or are they after something personal? Not that those things can't be the same thing, but are they after something some higher good or are they after trying to to decrease the their own degree of pain? Right. Pain. I think that's what she's getting at. Like were the in other so are they are they after is this is this something? I guess that noble is the word that's just on my mind. There is is this like some noble quest for them, or is it more about revenge? Boy, boy. That's how I, I took the question. I'm so glad you have to answer these, Tim. <laughs> it, it, I think there Guys, might be a pattern. Here's and the, the pattern thing, is going to be 
we don't need to have like we don't need to have final answers on these things that's why uh, that's why a book like this lingers right because it gives us these questions that we can keep talking about and not have to have a final answer for so if you send in a question on a Q&A episode for a book podcast expecting a final answer that may have been the wrong choice <laughs> the wrong expectation um but it's at least i find it an interesting an interesting idea at least okay so so while while tim wrestles with his blanket and thinks about this um <laughs> I, I don't know that this would be a separate thought in their mind. So, like, so they're saying we can't let this happen the, the to another the child. Ca- the characters, you the mean. The characters yeah. are saying we can't let this happen to another child. And um, I think that victims in those sense situations, it's like the same thing in their mind. Like, so you have this, this child was hurt and that's done and it cannot be undone. But you do get it's like you want your pain to have meaning and so when you can use that to help someone else it is both justice to stop him from hurting anyone else and it's also an alleviation of your own pain and it is closure to feel like okay you feel so helpless in that situation right they felt helpless to to save that child and so in a sense, it gives them closure and it heals their pain to feel like, well, I couldn't help this child, but I could help all these other children. He's never going to be able to do this again to somebody else. And that's the kind of things that victims say in a courtroom. That's that's the kind of victim statements you give, right? It's it's how it hurt me, but it's also how it hurts everyone at large. And we can't we can't let him do this to someone else. Right. So right. I don't know in their minds if it's two different things. It, it's all the same. Hmm. I imagine probably to varying degrees as well, right? Like the one yes. whose daughter died or something like that. The, the, no, I mean, the I don't mean to suggest revenge that is probably they, a little yeah, more. They than, walked in there and they don't have their personal feelings of hatred sure. that they yeah, want to yeah, exercise yeah. there. They do. Yeah. It's just all, it's all mixed together. Yeah. It, and especially because it's the death of a child. Yeah. Hey, Tim. I, I, when I was trying to clarify that, I interrupted you. I, so I want to give you a chance to say what you were saying. No, no, say. that's okay. I, I wanted to well, kind of clarify what I thought she was saying. I think that was a helpful clarification. My hunch, just based on the question, is something like is something like that. Were they motivated by, yeah, like personal passions for <laughs> revenge, or were they motivated by something more noble? My, I would agree with Angelina. I think they're motivated by personal passions and i don't think those personal passions are antonyms to justice the the question i keep thinking about this in our discussions we talked about this a little bit last week and i'm going to talk about it again we have kind of lived in this accumulated history of how we execute justice and there's always almost always a third party involved for us so if someone steals something from our house, we don't have to go get the thing back. We call it the police, the third party, and the third party hopefully execute justice on our behalf and returns the stolen goods to us and the thief is punished in some appropriate way. Um, what's happened here is that there's been a breakdown of the of third party justice. The American court system has failed to do its job adequately. And it's let a man that everyone acknowledges, everyone in the book acknowledges he's guilty. Mm-hmm. And now is it just to let the the verdict stand? Or is it just to say, because the third party failed, 
the first party, in this case, those who were offended, those who were kind of done wrong indirectly, take justice into their own hands and get it. So I think that I agree with Angelina. I think they're motivated by their personal passions. And I, and I think they get justice, even though they go outside of that third party system. Um, the reason that we have a third party system in the first place is because everyone acknowledges that personal passions always get involved between the wrongdoer and the wronged. And there must be, and we hope that cooler heads will prevail, uh, the police, the detective, the court system. We hope that those cooler heads will prevail and will bring about a judicious and fair settlement to all parties involved. So um, it does. I think in this situation, they, are, they were done wrong, and thus they were motivated personally and I don't think they were motivated merely by some sort of like a distant noble ideals for justice. Yet I think they achieved those noble, uh, yeah, those noble ideals of justice. It it does raise some interesting questions about you know, to to what degree are are ordinary citizens responsible to carry out justice when that third party right Um, yeah like is there a high a higher good that that well you know it's interesting that we have the tradition in america of the citizens arrest right oh yeah and and we also have a, a tradition of uh you know if there are certain types of crimes that if someone is aware of by law they have to report it like you have to you have in other words there is an assumption in the United States and I don't know if this is true in in England but there is an assumption in the United States that we have a civic duty to make sure that certain things are you know taken care of with justice right, right? and so there's an expectation that the citizens will rise up and make sure that justice is enacted, right? You know, we have we have cop shows that are dedicated to the idea of, you know, if you see something, you have to go report it. You have to be willing to take the stand, even if the mafia is going to murder you and your family, right? But we have that tension a lot in our movies. What is the responsibility of the person? And and even though there's great sacrifice, right? Sometimes they die. Sometimes they end up in witness protection program and they leave there. They lose their life. I mean, you know, their life, quote unquote. So either way, you've yes. lost your life if you see something like that. All of those shows, at least in me, stir up this feeling that there's this higher duty, that it's, that it's okay to lose your life in pursuit of the truth, that you, these guys get away with things because no one's willing to stand up. The citizenry is not willing to stand up. We also have a tradition in our, in our cop shows of the police being very powerless you know they have they you have to have the citizen willing to come forward um well, you know we also have this tradition in in western stories which is kind of like the great american you know genre um mm-hmm. almost every john wayne movie it like think rio bravo or the searchers where where the authorities themselves aren't doing their the job necessary so right um so john wayne or whoever comes in and and defends the you know the down and out or takes justice into his own hands or goes on this 
journey of revenge to you know the searchers is one of my favorite movies and it's kind of the same idea um when the bad person does something to someone you love what is your what is what is required of you you know like it's like in in the searchers john wayne's character almost feels like he has to do it because it's what's required of him when his loved one dies um and that's actually i've never thought about that as a companion to this but it's got raises a lot of the same themes um and but also the west is kind of driven by this wild west right this vigilant the sense of vigilante justice um and there's a fine line between you know the the violence that vigilante justice you know begets and the higher good that is that is justice earned for someone who was wronged right and right. um even David, David in like this is classic Greek theater. Also, I remember hearing David Hicks talk about Sophocles, Aeschylus, Euripides. What so many of those great Greek dramatists did is they put in conflict two things: the law of the land with what was understood to be the logoi, or the higher law, the ultimate law, God's law. Antigone by Sophocles is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. In Antigone, um, there's a civil war. Antigone's two brothers are the generals on opposite sides of the two wars. Finally, one of them wins. Uh, Her brother Polynesis is killed. And the king, Creon, decrees Polynesis must not be buried because he was on the wrong side of the civil war. Vultures will come and eat his bodies. Hyenas will devour him. And that's where he lies. And Antigone goes to Creon and says, no, I buried my brother. And the reason I buried my brother is that there is a higher law Mm -hmm, than mm -hmm. your law. And I think you're exactly right, David. That is part of the kind of the the Western, um, the American Western tradition plays that same note because it is such a vibrant everyday dilemma for so many of us. Like, when does this go out of when do I move away from my loyalty to this bunch of people and enter into a place um, where this higher law, God's law, and by God's law, I don't mean in this case just the Levitical law. I don't just mean— You mean the transcendent law. The transcendent law. When when do we move out of that? And that's what the dilemma of this book kind of—that's the thing we've been talking about is— these 12 people have recognized, I believe that they have recognized that this is the time that we have, that an injustice, a, a gross violation of the transcendent law has happened. And thus it's worth violating the nomo, the nomos, N-O-M-O-S, this kind of state law in pursuit of the logoi, the hmm. ultimate law. Hmm. Yeah, I'm so I agree with everything you said, Tim. And I I'm so curious what Brianna is going to do with this movie because I I keep thinking about how much this this is like the own our own time. We have so many acts of civil disobedience right now on both sides of the yeah. aisle, right? Lots both sides right now claiming the law is faulty. We will follow our conscience. Both sides. And so we're essentially we're in an argument about whose conscience is the one that we should all be following, yeah. right? Um. So it's very interesting that they chose to make this movie 
with these themes at this time. When we are in a state of social unrest right now, culturally, politically, um, over this same issue, right? What is the law that people should be following? And and yeah, both sides of the aisle are, are, are doing civil disobedience and, and claiming that they're following their conscience and that they're right to be doing that. So right, yeah. And then yeah. when the, the judges or the law rules in a way that they don't like, so they rule against their conscience, right? The person stands up and says, no, my conscience is inviolate. I am the one right. The courts are mm-hmm. wrong. Mm-hmm. So, and again, it's what's interesting is that this is this is on both sides. Conservatives and liberals are both making the same argument. Yeah. Well, we're always, we're always cultivating a cultural con- conscience. And so that yeah. ebbs and flows. And as, we don't as, have a shared cultural conscience right now. This is part of our issue. True. Yeah, yeah. Okay, two more questions before we uh, wrap this up. Sarah says, does this novel count as a true detective story? She puts true in quotation marks. She says that she found herself becoming exasperated in the third act as Poirot makes revelations about the characters and motivations that weren't available to her as a reader. Mm prior to his saying so. So they're not revealed until he says them. I have a novel called The Floating Admiral in which Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers, and Chesterton and others formed a correspondence writing club. And they write this novel in a series of chapters, each by a different author, and the rules were very strict. The reader had to be able to... Yeah, that came out of the detection club. The reader had to be able to solve the mystery on his or her own without the kind of hocus-pocus revelation. I like that she capitalized hocus-pocus revelation <laughs> on th- that we do get from Poirot and, and the murder on the Orient Express. I have to confess this has shaped my opinion of what a mystery novel ought to be. And so my question is this again. Is this a true detective novel? And can it be a true detective novel if the reader cannot make the same deductions from the presented evidence that the detective does? <laughs> Incidentally, I'm narrating this to Google Voice recognition, and I don't know why it keeps capitalizing random things. Well, Hocus Pocus Revelation ought to be capitalized, Sarah. So. It totally Absolutely, should be. Sarah. Come on. Good for I, you. I, I always. Angelina, thoughts on this? All right. Thoughts on this. Um, Is this a mystery novel yes. or a detective story? Well, okay. So I, I read her question and I thought about it, and I don't know that I agree that. Poirot is holding information that we would not know. So, you know, I read again I've, the section. I, I thought about this a lot as I was reading. So what do you think? Well, I want to hear what you, you should... say. I want to hear what you think first. Well, I would need specific examples because nothing struck me as I read it that this was something we, we couldn't know. Um, now, Agatha Christie does break some rules. P.D. James calls her the archbreaker of rules. But the rules that she breaks that P.D. James points out were, was not that rule. And, and she makes the case that Agatha Christie is extraordinarily good at deceiving her reader. But, but So she gives us everything we need to know, but she deceives you so that you don't know you know it. And P.D. James argues this is Agatha Christie's gift. This is the one mm-hmm. thing she's really good at. Um, so, so the first thing that I thought when I read that question was maybe we did have the information and we've just been deceived. We, we don't even know. So, I, you know, to me reading it again, as I knew the ending, nothing struck me like that. In fact, I was just tickled to see how much she was misdirecting and how much she was giving us all the information. I certainly thought that she gave more clues, more, um, more little hints than I had remembered. Um, because right. I, is, I had forgotten what? when I started reading it who had done it because it had been several years, like 10 years. But I had – but I pretty quickly remembered as I started seeing the little hints. Um, but there are things – like there's a fine line between giving the reader what they need to solve it and then giving them information that is part of the narrative. Like, for example, you could not have known who Cassetti was if she doesn't just tell you. 
Right. But but she gives us the information, right? He doesn't withhold like that's not the revelation at the end of Act Three. Oh, by the way, he's the Armstrong case, right? Yeah. Like we we get that on the front end. Um, one of the things PD James says in the way that Agatha Christie deceives us. Okay, so someone someone picks up a clue and. So let's say he's looking at a painting and he goes up close to the painting and he comments on, you know, I think this is a forgery. And she said, so you think in that moment that the clue is the painting is a forgery, but the clue really is that the guy's nearsighted. Hello? Mm, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. okay. So, right. so, so, so that's, that's the sort of way that she misdirects us. Well, what about – so, yeah, but is there – she she misdirects you away from the actual clue. Um, yeah. Into into how you interpret the clue. So she so gives the, it to you, but she misdirects. So you. what makes Poirot stand out then is his ability not to be distracted. Yeah, I guess so. So, by the misdirection. Well, what about the scarlet kimono? Because that's an example. Well, what about the scarlet kimono? <laughs> what about it? Do we have enough information about that to know what it actually, what its role actually was? Oh, I thought so. I, th- I thought so. Didn't you think so? I didn't think the scarlet kimono was the key to unraveling it or anything. Well, no, it's not. But, but I mean, it is misdirection, essentially, you know, the, the yeah. kimono. But did you, didn't you guys know that it was misdirection when, when I had a hunch, at least, oh, it was yeah. misdirection when he finds it in his own, you know, atop his own, in his own yeah. cabin. Agreed. I thought he knew it was misdirection too. Yeah, I thought so too. That's why I, he. That's why he laughs. I think what troubles people about this, as I was as I was reading and kind of thinking about people's responses, I think what what um, troubles people is that you never really know what Poirot actually thinks. So there's a difference between Agatha Christie giving a clue or giving misdirection and trying to actually understand whether or not Poirot is being honest in his assessments of things. That's one of the things P.G. James says, that the detective novelist is not under an obligation to tell you what the detective thinks, only what he sees. Huh. But I buy that. I buy that as but, part of the genre. I'm, I'm fine with that in theory, but, but that's not really what she's doing with Poirot, especially in this one, because it's constant. Like, the whole book is built around Poirot's belief in his ability to, to assess but people are feeling and thinking. But don't you feel like when he's talking to Book and, and the doctor, how how often it's clear that he's got something up his sleeve? That that cause because he, he keeps disagreeing with the conclusions that they're jumping to. It, to me it's clear in those conversations that he has he's onto a different tangent. Sure. I guess what I'm saying is if we're if it's true though that he that he is good at what he does because he is a master of psychology, like understanding the human psychology, then what he's doing is when he does when he does that he's just basically playing with them, and so you can't you can't know for sure exactly what he's thinking. Like you can't tell when he's being disingenuous and when he's being, you know, mm, possibly. Off. You know, another thing that could be troubling our listeners is, and and P.D. James talks about this that that for Agatha Christie, it's primarily a puzzle, and so sometimes that means things are going to be contrived and not believable. Um, yeah. And and P.D. James gives her a pass on that because she says it, she's doing what she does. She's creating a puzzle, and it's not mm-hmm. supposed to be a realistic representation of murder. Um, 
And of course, that was Raymond Chandler's issue with Agatha Christie. He said he wanted to give murder back to the bad guys. <laughs> and that's something that P.D. James talks about, that you never feel the sense of the presence of evil in an Agatha Christie novel, even if the characters will say that guy's evil. It doesn't feel evil. It feels tidy. It, it feels puzzle. There's a certain, she talks about how, um, so there's going to be always a bit of a detachment between the detective and what's happening in a Christie novel. Now, this is not the same thing that happens in Sayers. And I thought it was interesting when we talked about what Suchet does to the novel, right? He doesn't let, I mean, to the movie, right? He doesn't let Poirot be detached. He makes him emotionally attached and it shows him being emotionally affected at the end of the story with his rosary and he's shaken and he's crying. That's mm. what Dorothy Sayers does. Hmm. Right. So essentially, Suchet is trying to make Agatha Christie be Dorothy Sayers because Dorothy <laughs> Sayers at Busman's honeymoon has Peter collapse into Harriet's arms, you know, having a total sobbing breakdown about the fact that this guy's going to the death penalty. And he just, you know, the weight, it's not a detached puzzle for him. A life hung in the balance and he feels all of that. But that is not the way Christie's going to be approaching any of this. Hmm. Well, this just makes me realize that what we need to do is we've read say we've read some Sayers and we've read some Christie and now we and eventually one day we need to read some Raymond Chandler and kind of do a triumvirate. Oh of, yeah, of, of, I uh, completely time. agree with that. Sometime next her year chapter, we'll do that. Her chapter in here on the hard-boiled detective versus the classic detective was excellent, and I really? thought that she made a lot of the same points. She really, she really supported what Tim said last time, and she she roots both of those types of stories in their tradition. And so, you know, when Tim was expressing last week what bothered him about the detective story, and I said, oh, well, that's that's why you like American literature, right? Like, I could see that what he was saying essentially was he likes the American version of reality better. And um, and and she makes the same, the the same point. The American artistic mystery take on reality. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah well, right. okay. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, so she roots them in, in two very different traditions. Um, and then she she raises the point of, you know, she talks about the detachment. She talks about the upholding of institutions and all of that that comes out of the 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 English tradition. This real trust in your institutions. She's like they might be problematic and they might be um, failing, but they're not essentially corrupt. Whereas in the in the American version, the institutions are corrupt. That's one of the things that the hero has to overcome. He has to stand up against the corrupt institution. Um, so she, she says, look, the question of whether or not you should be satisfied with that version of reality is a whole other question. But that is the version right. you're in the British detective story. And yeah, um, yeah, I, I thought she totally, totally affirmed everything that that Tim said. So she gives you permission, Tim, not to like it. Well, sometime in 2018, <laughs> then we need to do we'll have to do some Raymond Chandler and you know, complete that triumvirate. That would okay. be fun. All right. Last question. At what this is from Gina. At what point do you think Poirot actually solves the case? She says that she has a theory that he figures out very early on that they all killed Cassetti, and then takes his time to first make the connections between each passenger, and second come up with a theory that will allow justice to be served. She says, "Sorry, I don't have any specific examples because I had to return my book to the library." <laughs> David, read the beginning of the question again. What point do you think? At what point do you think Poirot actually solves the case? She thinks that he figures it out very early, but then takes his time to make the connections between each specific passenger to lay out the case, and then second, come up with a theory that will allow justice to be served. I, I think that it's when he's sitting and he has that long silence with uh, the doctor and Book in the room, in the in the cabin. Remember when he goes silent for a long time? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's when he solves it. I, I think it's less clear when he settles the question for himself that he's going to let them off. What do you think, Angelina? Do you know? I agree with that. Uh, I, I, I think what happens is he he approaches it from the logical perspective and says, what is the solution that accounts for all the facts that I know? And he just keeps working. I, I think he goes through each passenger and says all these if-then syllogisms, right? If it's this person, then this, this, and this would have to be true. Oh, nope, I ran into a roadblock. This is not true. So then he goes to the next one, right? And he goes through all of them and he can't make any of them fit. So then he gets the idea, well, what if it's all of them? Because that's the only way to make the facts fit. And then once he figures out it's the only way to make the facts fit, then he works backwards from that, trying to figure out what role everybody must have played and how are they connected to one another. And so he almost works backwards by starting with this has to be the solution. And now I'm going to figure out the evidence to to support it. Yeah. Which is very, really very clever. He kind of toggles back and forth between deductive and inductive forms of reason. Yeah. 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 Because those two have to exist. Those two have to exist in some sort of um, dance together. You know, and sometimes one will take the lead and sometimes the other takes the lead. But, you know, uh, I think that Agatha Christie is good. I would not put this on a great books list. But what I thought the value of us, well, there was a lot of value. One, it gave us a, a, a lighthearted, fun break from some rather heavy. I mean, we did Brideshead and then Gilead. Like, we're, yeah. we needed a stiff drink and Agatha gave it to us. But <laughs> uh, so it was, a, it was a nice break. Um, and I also think that it's important to be to be reminded that even if something's not of the highest literary quality, it still can be worthwhile to read and it can still be read closely. And, um, you yeah. know, even if yeah. I'm reading something that I don't think is, you know, Sophocles, I still read it closely. I still make demands on it. I still want yeah. it to satisfy me in an artistic way. Um, and then I'm, you know, and I'm happy to let it be what it is. And it is fun and it's well crafted. Uh, and she's she's very good at what she does. You know, P.D. James said you're never going to get brilliant writing out of Agatha. She talks about how Dorothy Sayers at times absolutely has brilliant writing, but but Agatha Christie not so much. You know, for her it's the plot, and and I even put that on on Facebook. Um, Robert Graves wrote in a letter about Agatha Christie and compared her to P.G. Woodhouse, which I actually think is not fair because I think P.G. Woodhouse is a brilliant writer. No, but nonetheless, no, he is that he Woodhouse is a master stylist. He is. Well, yeah. So. I like Robert Graves, but that was a little iffy on his part to say that. But nonetheless, the point he makes about Agatha Christie is that her her value lies in her quality of story that and not in the quality of writing. And and yeah. it was funny because I feel like that's one of the tensions we've had on this show between the three of us as readers. I'm far more committed to the quality of story. You guys are far more committed to the quality of writing. Now, we're all happy when we get both of those. Right, right, right. But there are some kind of authors on the bubble, right, where – how we fall in our opinion really comes down to what we value more, the quality of the writing or the quality of the story. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of getting both of those, let's talk the next couple of books as we wrap up this podcast. Hey, David, I, I want to, maybe we can do that now. I do want to go back to Jill's question. Go for I, it. Yeah. I if you the philosopher Tim is Well, I was going to say, I, I was going to ask you for final thoughts. So we'll do the final thoughts now and then we'll go, but then we'll go to the books instead of the other way around. <laughs> Could you read Jill's question again? Oh, you man. think we weren't fair to Jill's I'd, question? You think I just keep this up the whole time? 
<laughs> you think we were unfair to her, don't you? I think that I was unfair. Um, but I think the fact that I was... Are you try are you feeling guilty and you feel like you need to to offer her justice? No, you need to apologize. No, do, feel... do you like me to stab you in your sleep twelve times? <laughs> I mean Jill's a Jill's a great listener, a great okay, reader. I, I got it. I see stuff on close reads, uh the, the Facebook page all the time. I want to go back to it because I think the wheels have been turning in the back of my head and yeah, you're right, Angel Lee, like the philosopher can't let it go. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to go back to it. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Here, I want to hear so he, this. Here's her question. How bad would Cassetti have to have been for us to feel that sense of justice? What Angelina said in her first response was a lot more, I think, prescient than my stumbling through and answer to that question. It's hard to answer that question outside of the confines of the life world of Agatha Christie's book because in Agatha Christie's book, she has created, this is why we read fiction. It's why we go to plays. It's why we watch movies. She creates this life world in which the rules of the life world are all kind of bound together in a system in like kind of like a yes. total imaginative universe. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Go ahead. And, and when we pull the decision when we pull the question of justice outside of that life world, it's kind of like we have to, it's not that we start from scratch, but we're pulling it into our life world in which our life world in 21st century America, the rules are, are similar, but the rules are very different. And I think part of what, part of what kind of um, jarred me about the question is that, Really, when we think about justice, I think the closest discipline that it's akin to is aesthetics. And what I mean by that is if if David is painting a painting and it's a landscape and he it's a beautiful landscape next to a lake with beautiful trees. Some are red, some are green, some are yellow. And then he sticks in something that doesn't belong, uh, 2007 Subaru in the middle of this, we say that doesn't fit. It's jarring. It doesn't work with the total life world of this painting that David has made. So I, whenever we think about what is, what is just when something has been done wrong, let's say to our kids at school, we feel like an injustice has been done. We consider the total life world of that school of the character of our child, the character of the student, the character of the teacher, the character of the other students that were involved. And so it's just Jill's question is a is a jarring one because it asks us to remove the particular deed of this these 12 people done in that particular life world and relocated into our life world. And that is a it's a profoundly difficult task. I think it's a, it's an intriguing task, but I think it's a really difficult task. But oh, I like this answer so much. You have no idea. This is like my passion, right? About what can you ask of a book and what can you not ask of a book? And mm. you have to let the book be what it is. Yeah. Okay. So I agree with that, but there's two things, there's two factors that play into this that that I think I might disagree with you on, but I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe not. I can't. It's going to be sure. two against one, David. Go ahead. 
<laughs> uh, I'm fine with I don't even I no, so okay here's the thing in principle I don't disagree with that like as an idea in principle I do not disagree with most of what you said but there's two things that have to happen for that to be for your argument to hold true for me one yeah. that world has to have it has to be consistent with it within itself yes so if it's not then it is fair to say what is going on here Absolutely. Yes, totally agree. And I think part of the question is essentially getting at, is this world being consistent within itself? I think that's part of what she's getting at. That's fair. That's totally fair. If if that's what Jill's question is, I think that is the exact right question. It's almost like the question of the book, and it's very perceptive. Oh, yeah. Okay, so then here's Um, my— I took it to be—I took it to be a different question. I took it to be— take this out of the life world that it inhabits and put it in yeah. our life world. So maybe yeah, that's I would. How I re- no, that's how I, I read okay. it too. Okay. Asking us to comment on the, the morality that's presented in, in the book. Like it's a morality play. Yeah. Okay. So here's... I... go ahead. Go ahead. I was talking to my dad today and we were having breakfast together and we were talking about, um, he taught me how to play chess when I was a young man. And we were talking about just what a glorious game chess is. And what I think what is so intriguing about chess is that every single move in chess completely alters the life world of that particular game. Mm-hmm. So much so that my friend Lee Miller, who's just <laughs> – Lee Miller is a chess teacher. Lee Miller turned his back to me when we were playing chess. <laughs> Never once looked at the board, and I'm a decent chess player. Never once looked at the board, and I just called out each of our moves, and he like waxed me. That's how good he is as a chess player. I asked him, I said, Lee, like, how do you decide which students you will take on to be your, you know, chess proteges? And he said, Oh, I look at their eyes when they're playing. And I said, What do you mean? And he said, a good player does not focus in on just one piece, the bishop, the king, the queen. But a good play, a good young player's eyes are darting all around mm-hmm. the board and are looking at the total, what I'm calling life world of the game. And I think what we want to come to take it into the realm of justice, that's what we want from our judges. And that's when we assess that a judge is a bad judge or a person is unwise is when they just focus on a particular infraction without taking account of the total system that the infraction took place in. And so I think that's what, that's why I say that justice is closest kin is aesthetics. It's because when David is painting the painting, it's the total canvas and the final picture that he's seeking must be germane to itself, must be consistent with itself. And so, again, going back to Jill's question, if there is an, um, I think it would be right to say an injustice has been done in the book, if there is an inconsistency in that life world that Christie presented to us. I really like the comparison you're making between justice and aesthetics because the way that I would say it, but we're saying the same thing, but the way that yeah. I would say it was justice is an attempt to restore harmony. Mm. And so for me, the question is, did I feel a sense of, was there harmony at the end of yeah. this book? 
I also am, have to ask you this. Well, if but, you like chess, how do you not like detective stories? They're all just one big chess match. But, okay. <laughs> hold on, hold on. That, this hold is on, troubling hold on, hold on. me now. You just said something, you just said something that, that you need to say again before you started asking Tim about oh. his personal psychology. So you <laughs> say that again, what you just said about harmony. Well, justice is an attempt to restore okay. harmony. Agreed. But then you said something else. About. Well, that's why the question I'm going to ask myself at the end of the book is, is there harmony Okay. in but, the musical piece that she has crafted? Right. right. And it ends on a harmonious note. So for me, that is this. She has succeeded so in you, what she. You believe that there is harmony at the end then? Yes, I do. But I think the point is that many people who are reading do not feel harmony at the end of the book. I don't feel like it's harmon- that the world is harmonious at the end of it. And I think that's, oh, but that's really? the point of it. David, why not? Because even if there's justice has been served for the particular crime that crimes that Cassetti committed, as Angelina has pointed out in previous episodes, that does not mean that there's harmony within the souls of the characters that we're still wondering, should they have been punished for what they did? Like, just because justice has been served does not mean that. Okay, so I don't disagree with that place of harmony. I think you have two separate issues. One is, has Agatha crea- Christie created harmony in terms of her story, the world that she creates that Tim was talking about? Yeah. And, and I think that's a separate question of does harmony actually exist, which is just another way of saying the same thing we've been saying. You know, I think Christie intends for this to be a satisfactory ending, not an opening a can of worms for us to discuss. But that doesn't mean that we can't do that. I mean, on, on a spiritual, personal level... I do not think that those people will now have harmony in their souls. I think that this will continue to haunt them and there will be all these issues. But in terms yeah. of the world, that that's not the way Christie thinks about evil and the effects of murder. In fact, one of the points P.D. James makes is how little effect there is of the murder, that we never see grieving and we don't see any. She said there's a sense in which at the end of an Agatha Christie story, you expect the corpse to stand up, wipe off the blood and walk off the stage. Huh. Okay, so but then but huh. then wouldn't. You, couldn't you make the argument then that therefore she is a failure because what she's not doing is presenting she, she may be creating a world which is true to itself but the world is so limited as to make it completely lacking in artistic quality because the characters within it are not acting how people do david that is that is my complaint against the book and it's i i would actually agree with that but that's oh i know i know Go ahead. Go ahead, Tim. I don't find it unsatisfying. I think it is a game of chess that she is doing. And I think that she she completes the game of chess and there's a proper victor within that world. For me, what she doesn't show is just not part of her task, but it's part of the reason that I could only ever give it four stars and never five stars because – That's completely legitimate. Yeah, it's the stuff that's off the stage. Is that's what I'm just so interested in. As a standalone piece of chess, as a standalone chess game, it's absolutely wonderful. But I just think there has to be something. It's those deeper things that happen off the stage that I'm most interested in. I think completely agreed. And that's that's why the Russian. That's why Crime and Punishment to me is so eminently satisfying. Is that it's the chess game happens on the stage. But the, redemp- the suffering and the redemption also happens on the stage. 
I completely agree with you. And so in terms of the question, is this an artistic failure? I'm not ready to say it's a failure, but I will say that that is why it fails to reach the level of great book or high art. Yeah, we are we're on the same page there. Mm-hmm. David, are you where are you on that? Um, I, I mean, I yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. But that's to me, that's a different question than whether or not it's like worth reading on the show. Like, you know, I mean, oh, like people absolutely. should still read yeah, it. Yeah. People should still read books like this in part because it's like when you're um, if I'm teaching my 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 oldest son loves to learn how to he loves to cook with me. Right. But he can't Aww. cook. He cannot cook everything. And OK, so he loves when I'm chopping stuff, he wants to chop with me. So I slowly, carefully try to teach him how to use my good, sharp knives that would literally slice his little tiny pinky off if he used it improperly right but um you know these are tools that i sharpen that i keep carefully around that i that are there for a very specific purpose that is playing a part in what i would consider an artistic endeavor right to make something to make a really excellent dish hopefully um and i on occasion once every blue moon i accomplish that right but if i if he wants to join me and learn me learn how to do that I can't have him like I can't teach him how to do something complicated at first. Right. So I teach him how to I give him a very a much less sharp knife and I give him something soft to cut into. Right. And I teach him the proper technique to cut like, I don't know, mushrooms or something. Right. Um, And then he maybe he graduates up to an onion that I've already sliced and I teach him how to dice it. Right. Um, Or I teach him how to mix things, you measure out things in a measuring cup and then properly mix them or how to crack an egg or something like that. These are relatively simple tasks or techniques that he has to learn how to do before he can do it on a more complex level. And I think there's, that's where there's the same sort of value in reading a book like this. And, you know, it's sort of the same idea as chopping mushrooms or, or cutting or cracking an egg, right? We can talk about in complicated literary ideas in something that isn't overly complicated itself because it helps us express those ideas and contemplate them and and um you know that's where the value in them come and in reading a book like this comes in and instead where the value of reading what we could call quote low art um with our students as well because it helps us engage with principles uh without having to be overcome by you know incredibly complicated structure or complex sentences or whatever Mm -hmm. you know there's there's a place for that but there's also a place for for chopping mushrooms and cracking eggs first or or even reviewing how to do that sorry sorry go ahead no no um and 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 i think that we've been talking about one of the things that is really passionate you know and a passionate thing for me which is that knowing what to expect from a book, right? That the form dictates what our expectations ought to be. And so I think that we have addressed that, right? Like when we say we can't expect Agatha Christie to be Dostoevsky, she is not. That's not who she is. That's not what she's trying to do. And so you just have to let her be her morality play. And a medieval medieval morality play is not Dostoevsky either. They're not going to be all angsty and, you know, they're just they're moving chess pieces and they're they're saying yeah. something with that, but they're not saying, you know, you're not going to get all this psychological realism in a morality play. It's just not what it is. Um, and, and so I take Agatha Christie for what she is. And I and I don't put demands on her to be something that she's she's not. I mean, P.D. James keeps saying, look, if Agatha Christie tried to do those things, she would be going beyond herself and her abilities as a writer and would just fail. It would fail. But she what she does, she does really, really well. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, when I was visiting with Wendell Berry a couple, a couple weekends ago, he kept, you know, one of the things he kept coming back to was the idea of vocation. Um, and here at Cersei, we don't talk about 
vision and mission. We talk about vocation and commission um, and how, you know, a vision is something you create yourself and vocation is, is something you're called to. And Barry kept talking about how he, it took him a long time to figure out what, what his vocation was as a writer um, because he was talking about how so many different great writers have different vocations in their writing. And it took mm. him into well into his thirties before he realized that his vocation was to be responsible to the place that he was from and that his writing needed to gear, be geared towards that. And so when huh. he, he was capable, you know, he's a, this is a man who's a Dante and Milton scholar who understands Shakespeare deeply, who could write much more, who, who loves Faulkner and who, who loves, you know, literature far beyond this, the genre or style that he writes in, but he felt a calling in his certain writing. And it seems like Christy, you know, she, she had a vocation in a sense um, that her gift, that her gifts pushed her towards or pushed her into. And she, she fulfilled that vocation both for her readers and for, and for the genre and for the art form itself. Mm-hmm. If anything, she teaches us how to read closely, right? If she's trying to constantly misdirect us, you got to slow down and pay attention. Yeah, true, true. And asks allows us to ask, you know, the great thing about one of the things that is great about these books is we can ask the questions that we want to ask and talk about big ideas, whether she is kind of pushing us towards them or not. Right. Mm-hmm, that's that's mm-hmm. another value of a mystery story. We can talk about justice all the time. Um, and I'm and I'm fine with that. Where where it gets sticky for me is when we want to start accusing her of failing something because she doesn't answer those questions. Because I just feel right. protective of her, like she's not trying to answer that. <laughs> so we can debate that, but we have to debate it separate from her. I, I do, think that's that's a great reminder. I do think great in this reminder. novel, though, one thing I haven't said yet is I do think that she is playing with with. Um, I think she's being more subtle about what she thinks about justice in this book than her other ones. Like, I don't think oh, she really, I don't, th- I think that in particular in how she presents Poirot and especially him at the end, I think that maybe she is kind of creating a story. That's a little bit like maybe she's trying to do something different than she did in all of her other books, but maybe we can talk about that next week when we talk about the, the movie. Cause I want to see, how, I want to see how he interprets it before. I, I am looking forward to see, see what he does here. Okay. I have some I have some hunches of what I think he's going to do. Like, I have a hunch he's not going to leave it as open-ended as the book does. Don't you? Don't you think he's going to say something? Yeah, I kind of think he – you know, hey, you guys, let's do a little experiment. <laughs> let's make a note to ourselves of what we think is going to be what he's going to do with the ending. Oh, yes. Yeah. Because it might, it might be like fun that. as a little – to um to talk about that next week, what we expect he's going to do kind of in our cultural moment, how he's going to handle that. Mm. And I, I know for myself, once I see a movie, having had an expectation, I always forget what my expectation is unless I write it down. So that would be, I'm going to do it regardless because I forget those sorts of things. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, let's make note of that and then we can discuss that next week. So, um, yeah, Okay, well, let's wrap this up by talking about the next few books. So as I, as I said last week, we're going to be doing Twelfth Night next. Um, and that is five acts long. The acts are not terribly long, so we'll do an episode on each act. Um, it's not a terribly long play, and it's a fairly easy read, in my opinion, f- you know, relative to some of the other Shakespeare plays. I've never read it before. Um, there are several movies, so I actually have no problem, like, with, if, if it were my students or whatever, I personally have, would have no problem with my students going and watching a, like, a BBC version of the performed version or the movie first. Give it, I view Shakespeare a little differently than, 
than other things because the, they were meant to be performed. So experiencing it for the first time as a performance is not not an issue for me. Tim, oh, yeah. Tim, do you agree with totally. that? Yeah, totally, totally agree. So there's a Trevor Nunn made one in 96, which is pretty good. Um, there is a Kenneth Branagh version, which I think he did based on the Royal Shakespeare Company's um, performance of it that he turned into a movie through the BBC or something. I don't think it's a big budget one or whatever, but you can find both of those as relatively recent ones. And there's lots of stage versions and, and around. For our readers, are we or for our listeners, are we going to unify around a particular production? I, I, I would vote that we do. You mean of an a, a filmic version? Yeah. Uh, then, if so, then I think we need to do the '96 version from with Trevor Nunn. Uh, Trevor Nunn produced. It's got Helena Bonham Carter in it. Is this easily accessible for me over here? You know, with my hand cranked VCR. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm like no, on Gilligan's Island over here. I'm it's pedaling pretty, to get my TV to work. It's pretty easy to find as far as I know. I think it's even on one of the streaming services like Amazon. And worst case, okay. Angelina, you can I can loan you the copy. I can loan you my parents' copy. Oh, um, perfect. Um, but yeah. Just on a real-to-real movie thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and then I want to go ahead and make an announcement for the book that we – are going to do after that um which tim i picked you up a copy of by the way at a used oh, bookstore with no writing in it um good we're gonna, i'm gonna write in it though <laughs> well he, he i don't think he minds writing it i think he doesn't want a book that has someone else's writing in it um we're gonna do uh em forrester's howard's end to start the new year um i th- it's it's a bride's head length ish book i think it's gonna be a great one to start the year off with uh angelina you read it years ago right Years ago, yes. But Tim, you have not read I it. Hardly remember I've never read it. About it. There is a, also an incredibly well received, I believe, possibly Academy Award winning uh, version of the movie. Um, yes, this was an Anthony example Hopkins. where I watched the movie. Yes, Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson, and it, yep. I watched the movie, and then I think Helena Bonham Carter's in there too. Anyway, I watched the movie and then immediately read the book. So success to me, a, a movie is successful if it makes me want to read the book. So. It touches on many of the same themes that we've talked about, um, and the reason that I was reminded of it and motivated to bring it up with you guys is because in preparing for that Wendell Berry interview, he talks about it a lot in a lot of his writing, um, mm. and he talks. He, it all turns on affection is the name of one of his essay collections, and that's a line from Howard's End, um, and it's a story about you know some of the same things themes we've talked about with modern you know what the the advent well, it's of named after a and, place so you know we got those same themes huh yeah yeah it's yep exactly and it's it's about uh the the, the advent of modernism and what that means for uh the old culture um mm. that what's passed away what we've lost what we're gaining with 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 modernism it's kind of a turn of the century no, uh, novel so um if you uh want to ask for that for christmas or get it for someone for christmas or buy it for yourself for christmas i thought i'd mention it now to give you some time to add that to your wish list so we'll start yeah. that uh in the new year after we finish 12th night um i guess that is about it so if Angelina and Tim, if you, well, my hope is to be able to announce two books ahead of time so people have plenty of time to read and get copies and things like reserve copies of the library and all that. I'm just always amazed when you plan ahead that you're just assuming we're also going to be alive. Like this, I don't operate under that assumption. <laughs> um, like as soon as you started saying sometime in 2018 we'll get that, like I felt my chest if, tighten. Like, wow, that's a lot of pressure, David. I got to stay alive that long. If, if you know, if I've planned and then we're dead. <laughs> It doesn't really matter. So I'm going to promise gonna me plan. if I die, the show does not go on without me. I need this <laughs> promise to me. 
Well, at least rename it like go from joy division and new order like i need that kind right, of break right, i promise that if something happens to you like we have someone that works for us that always says if i get hit by a bus you have to know how to do this if you get hit by a bus then tim and tim and i will rename the show to the tim and david reading hour um, okay <laughs> if you are in memoriam something in memoriam that's fitting it, 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 yeah exactly we'll figure something out don't worry i'll start working on my eulogy today because <laughs> i want to be remembered in a very specific way <laughs> <laughs> all right tom sawyer um uh, and and um i've got a list of books like a long list of books for to potentially consider for 2018. So what Angelina, Tim, and I will talk about those and try to have a couple books that, you know in advance for you all to, to be prepared. For those of you that like to prepare and, and you know plan in case you actually are alive. Um, Tim, Angelina, any final thoughts? None for me. <laughs> no, no. This was, a, this was a good conversation. I liked yeah, it was. It. All right. Well, that is it. We will talk to you next week to talk about the Kenneth Branagh film adaption of Murder on the Orient Express. For Angelina Stanford, for Tim, Ma- for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us... <laughs> I thought you were gonna say. Me, I thought I you were gonna say something. Over his no, name, I, like, I, or Tim. What's his no, last name? No, no, help no. me! Help me! I, I thought someone was about to say something, so I was trying to stop. For Angelina <laughs> Stanford, for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us here at the Cersei Institute, I am David Curran saying farewell and close reads on the Cersei Podcast Network. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we look forward to talking to you next time. Mm-hmm.